Today we have a special guest. Her name is Jane Hampton Cook. And I've known Jane and her husband for a few years. Uh, She used to work at the White House where she was actually the webmaster. uh, And she had actually worked uh, for Governor George W. Bush and then went to the White House to work for him. And so she was the webmaster, which was a pretty cool gig. And then uh, since then, she has become a historian, a commentator. She's an award-winning author. She's written several books. Um, and I have your book. I'm looking at it right now. It's called American Phoenix uh, on uh, Mr. and Mrs. John Quincy Adams. I, I have another one of your books actually behind me, Battlefields and Blessings. So uh, your work is surrounding me and you know inspiring <laughs> me. You've been on... CNN, Fox News, uh, C-SPAN, and you have this new book called Resilience on Parade, Short Stories of Suffragists and Women's Battle for the Vote, uh, which I've, uh, I've been reading, and I've really been enjoying it. It's, uh, it's a fascinating topic. Uh, it's something that I, a few years ago I did an episode on uh, the history of women who've run for president, so I got a little bit of exposure on the topic of uh, women's history in the United States, uh, but I've I learned a lot of things that I didn't know from from your work. So you just published this book. Uh, it it's fascinating. How did you get the idea of doing this? Well, I was working as a historical consultant with the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission, and the director at the time, Rebecca Cleefish, who was a former lieutenant governor of um, Wisconsin had given a speech and she turned to me and she said, Jane, you ought to write a book. And so she and I talked about it and, um, and we just, what really drew me, you know, a lot of the material that I'd read on suffrage was a little dry and dull, frankly. Mm -hmm. And so, but when I read her speech, I was like, that's, that, that pulls me in. And I think it's because, you know, I look at Abigail Adams and I look at her taking initiative and I look at Elizabeth Cady Stanton and she's got vision. And so we use these character qualities, these virtues as a theme for each of the of the suffragists in the book. Mm-hmm. And that just pulled it together for me. It made it more relevant. It made it something more that I could relate to because we all need perseverance. And right now we all need resilience in the aftermath of COVID and the, the shutdown. And so those themes, I think, are just really relevant. And that's, that's kind of how the whole book came together. That's wonderful. And the first chapter, you talk about John and Abigail Adams, one of the most iconic written about marriages in American history, not just in the founding of our country. And as I was reading it, um, I really was struck by kind of the uniqueness of their marriage and also their parenting. Uh, Can you talk about that, how they were unique in their generation and also in American history? Well, they really were unique because um, women back then, they were often taught to read so they could read the Bible, but they didn't always learn to write or not well, and they weren't necessarily very well read. But Abigail was really the exception. She devoured all the books in her father's library. Her father was a minister, and she quoted great works of literature throughout her writing. She was a prolific letter writer. And so what I discovered is that their relationship, John and Abigail's relationship was very mutually intellectual. They really had this give and take intellectually. 
And that was just the glue. And they passed along this value of education to their children. I mean, John wanted his sons and his daughter to learn to speak French. And he, he valued Abigail's French speaking skills. Um, and he once wrote her that I, I love to watch you think. I long to watch you think. And they just had this great intellectual relationship that was really the glue of their marriage and their parenting. Yeah, that's wonderful. And uh, you, so you talk about their parenting uh, and and their children and, and just kind of the impact that that had on their lives. What aspect of their parenting do you think really shows up in their lives, especially with uh, John Quincy Adams? Well, you know, John Quincy Adams was probably one of the best educated men of his generation. And he was exposed to the classics. He could speak French by the time, you know, he was 10 because of his mother. Um, And studies have shown, and you've probably seen some of these, uh, the IQs of presidents and John Quincy Adams is at the top. Um, Whenever they analyze the IQs of presidents, he's at the top. And that's because he had really great genes um, through his parents. So I see. Now, Abigail Adams famously said, uh, to her husband to remember the ladies. It's such a famous quote, uh, and it's it's one of those that people can recall. What were the circumstances of her saying that to him, and how did John Adams respond to her? So in March of 1776, she was in um, Boston in, um, in Massachusetts at their farm, and he was in Philadelphia waiting for the coming together of the Second Continental Congress. So he was thinking about declaring independence and she knew that. So she wrote him a letter and she asked him to remember the ladies as he's making a new code for America because she wanted women to be better protected. Um, and and he and she went, it kind of became a playful banter between the two of them. It's on the surface, his letter back to her, he doesn't seem to take her seriously and kind of they have a teasing back and forth about it. But within two months, he engages in a debate about who should be able to vote. And that debate really reveals that he really thought about what Abigail said, because he that he, he asked the question, you know, should working men who don't own land vote? Uh, because there were a lot of white men who didn't own land and they couldn't vote. Should women vote? If you're going to let those men vote, you need to let women vote. You know, so he was playing out the logic of expanding suffrage to to everyone. And he, um, he that was a little mind blowing for him because at the time, only 16 percent of the population was eligible to vote. Those were the landowners. And I think it was just a little too mind-blowing to think about the 84% voting as well at that time, but he did have a solution, and his idea was more people should own land. Let's carve the land up in smaller pieces so that more people can be truly independent and self-sufficient, and so that was really his concept, and we see that concept today, right? Not in voting, but we see it in the American dream to own a house to have a piece of property that is yours. That really comes from kind of the value of the cultural independence that the landowners presented back in that time period. Yeah, and that's a very interesting subject because you often, when you look at the current discussions of women's rights and when people look back at the founding, there's there are different views on it. There are some people that believe that the founders uh, – 
you know, they viewed women as not, uh, you know, being uh, prepared to be able to vote, participate. Uh, but then you have situations where some women were allowed to vote and it was, you know, an issue of people owning land and being independent and being able to make that independent choice. Um, how would you address those kind of issues on how women and their rights were perceived during the founding? So women, there were women that owned land that were able to vote at times. So um, Lydia Taft was a, had just become a widow. This was in the, during the French and Indian War. And the town came to her and said, we want you to vote. Um, in this decision about raising a militia and they needed, you know, her, the people, they needed the farmers on her land to go and serve. Um, so they needed her consent and the records show that she voted several times throughout her life. Um, and I think that shows great respect for her, that they trusted her judgment. Um, New Jersey um, allowed women to vote um, who owned land from 1776 to 1807. And so that's a little known fact that there were women voting and it was party politics that stopped it. The Democratic Republican Party realized, oh, all the women are voting for the Federalists. We can stop and get more votes for the Democratic Party if we add the word male to our voting laws. So sometimes it's not what you think. It's not necessarily always discrimination against women because they're women. It was party politics playing dirty, frankly. Um, back then. So it's it's not always what you think, but it um, but what it really struck me when I was reading John Adams's letter and that when I looked back at the medieval era and how that's where it all came from, the land ownership, I realized, oh, okay, the landowner was the only one in society who could go to the voting boot without bias because he didn't depend on anyone else. And back then, it's not that you rented land and paid a check and that was it. You you owed your landlord your military service. You were to if you could vote, you would have been expected to vote like your landlord. And we can't imagine if you rent an apartment today, you can't even imagine being told you have to vote the way your property manager is voting. But that was really where it started. And that was the concept that they had. And I think sometimes we retroactively fit today's culture back on that time period. And it's really it's more um, helpful, I think, to really try to understand where they were coming from, um, from their point of view, from their eyes. And I think you, you see things a little differently when you look at it that way. And then you can appreciate the progress that we've made, that everybody can vote. You don't have to own land. There's no test. We've ruled that out, you know, um, and that the voting is now because you exist, um, you know, as a citizen of the United States, that you are endowed by a creator with inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And um, that that's where that really comes from. And I, I noticed that jo Thomas Jefferson took the word property out of John Locke's philosophy. He was, um, you know, the, the not pursuit of happiness, but property. And he, by doing that, he set the stage to widening the consent of the governed to include non-property owners. Yeah. And Lydia Taft, when you think of the context, was probably one of the very few women on the planet and one of the earliest women in the modern age in all of the world who had the right to vote. So you're, you're looking at this from a perspective of where America was versus where the rest of the world was. That's true. 
Um, yeah, that's very true. And that she, um, that she had that because she was viewed as unbiased, you know, as, as having, as being in this position of owning land and having people rent land from her and, um, that kind of thing. So, right. And so moving on from the Adamses, you talk about, uh, the two very indispensable figures of the suffrage movement. And so the first one we'll talk about Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and one thing, uh, you know, being a presidential podcast, obviously having that connection with pr- presidential right. history. And I've heard of James Burney um, mm-hmm. just, you know, as he was a candidate that ran. And I, I can't say I know a lot about him, but you t- wrote about a very fascinating uh, meeting uh, between the two, a, a chess match. So could could you talk about that? Sure. And, well, and talk Eli- about who James Burney is, obviously. Yeah. Right. So Elizabeth Cady Stanton um, is about, is in her mid-20s. She just got married. This is 1840. And she's on a ship on her honeymoon, basically. But she and her husband are going to London for the World Anti-Slavery Conference. And James Burney was a delegate to that conference, but he was also a presidential candidate for the anti-slavery um, party in America. Um, and he was, in, he was much older. He was from Kentucky. Um, but he was a Southerner who had can't come to oppose slavery and he had moved to New York. So he was um, playing chess with Elizabeth on the ship and giving her pointers. He said, when you get to England, there's certain manners that you need to follow and certain etiquette. And then he scolded her uh, because earlier in the day she had um, taken a ride up the main mast, the big, the main sail of the ship. And um, it was just a flat little board, kind of like a swing, but with ropes. And people would sit on the board and the sailors would hoist them all the way up to the top. And it's like what the struck zip, me about, zip lining of its day, Like right? a zip line, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And we, you think about back then, they didn't have airplanes, right? So this was an aerial view that was spectacular. You could see what was behind you, the ocean behind the ocean in front of you. And then you could see the whole ship all at once from above. There were no and drones. A, yeah, <laughs> no drones. exactly. Like a drone. Mm-hmm. And it, this was a huge thrill. And the captain of the ship had encouraged her to take advantage of seeing the ship this way. And I use it metaphorically that she could kind of see what was to come in her life, that that vision that she soon developed for women's voting rights came right after this ship experience. But he scolded her and said that was unladylike. Women should not do such things. And that that hurt her feelings and really offended her. And she had she had grown up with a father who lost a son and told her frequently that he wished she had been born a boy. And she had tried to prove her value. And I think that that wound um, really set the stage for her that when they got to the world's anti-slavery conference, women were not allowed to speak. And it was at that point she had this vision of let's have a women's conference. Let's talk about the discrimination and the laws against women. And then she realized that the pathway to solving discrimination, especially legal ones, was through voting rights. If women could vote, then they could hold their leaders accountable. And um, so that really became the nexus through which all of the other women's rights issues at that time flowed was this idea of getting the vote. Right. And obviously it would be a very long effort over many decades, unfortunately, right. one that would have to continue on without them. And such a big moment in American history was the Seneca Falls Convention uh, yes. and the Declaration of Sentiments. And, it, you know, very interestingly enough, it's patterned after 
the Declaration of Independence. How did how did those two documents relate? The Declaration of Sentiments and and the Great Declaration of Independence. So they took the Declaration of Independence and they used parts of it almost word for word, but they added the word um, that all men and women are created equal. And what I what I appreciate about the Declaration of Sentiments is that it they used the founding principle and applied it to them that they were claiming the Declaration of Independence for women, and uh, you know it. That that was really their nexus, and they were called little Hancocks and little Jeffersons um, in the newspapers, not always in a positive way um, in the after effects. But then they outlined their grievances, and some of those grievances, you know, really rubbed some people the wrong way. But they were because they, they were pretty blunt. But it was um, it was a reform movement in that way. It wasn't a revolution. It was taking the best of the American Revolution and expanding it. That's interesting because there are people I've read who say that when Jefferson and the founders signed on to the Declaration of Independence, they argued that all men are created equal was to refer to men as in humanity. Right. Um, and, right. And, and and that may very well have been what they meant. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it seems like the Declaration of Sentiments was maybe saying it was was it a way to say, well, that is still too focused on men and inadequate to describe women as well. Is that, or is it kind of, did they see themselves as uh, kind of, kind of declaring the founding principles as inadequate or did they see themselves as, uh, you know, creating something new or, or going along with it with more implications? I I think what they were doing was, a lot of the state laws that were written after the Declaration of Independence, you know, the, 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 the Constitution, and we can talk about this in a minute, up to that point did not include the word male or female. But when state laws were written, the words male were often put into the laws. And so um, especially voting laws, because as the working class male that did not own land Um, got the right to vote, the way they described that in their state voting laws was to add the word male or, you know, free male to to the laws. So the word male was appearing in a lot of state laws. And that is why I think they felt like they had to clarify that the declaration applied to women, too. I'm not so sure it was a statement against the declaration as much as just the culmination of women weren't allowed to own land in some states. And, and to try to show, hey, we 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 want to be a part of the consent of the governed. And not to get too far ahead, but you talk later on about the amendment process, future amendments where that issue, the term being male, becomes an issue. Uh, but it seemed like the Constitution didn't talk about, it didn't make a distinction between one or another. Was that because the issue just wasn't really being discussed or was it because of a conscious effort by the founders to say that, well, you know, this doesn't discriminate between men or women? You know, I think if you were to ask the founders, if women were considered U.S. citizens, I think they would have said yes. Um, And I think that they purposefully kept some of the constitution sort of vague um, so that it could last the so it could so it could be timeless you know so that it would if you got too specific in some places then it would um 
it would cause other problems. And I think that's one reason why they did leave certain words out that they didn't define citizen as male. I think they thought, you know, they expected women to obey the laws, right? Um, if a woman committed murder, she was going to jail. So, it, you know, it was, it was, um, they really saw the blessings of liberty as applying broadly, but, um, it's really more how those state laws got applied later that created some of the problems. Hello everyone. My name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Now, before I get to Susan B. Anthony, just going in the order of those chapters, sure. you talk about Sojourner Truth, and I love the mm. way you introduce her because I wasn't familiar with her name before Sojourner mm. Truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, amazing story, really. Uh, somebody that one sees in the history books, but you know, someone like me who loves history, I didn't know much about her past. So, yeah, please tell me about her background and you know, you sure. talk about her siblings and her faith and her mom and, you know, how she she found herself. I mean, it's just an incredible story. It's an incredible story. And it's taken from her narrative, her memoir. Um, so she was born Isabella Bomfrey, um, probably around 1797, 1799 in New York. And she happened to be born as New York was making laws to gradually abolish slavery. And so, but, you know, she lived... Um, that was going to be a few decades away before she would she would uh, become a free person before slavery would be fully abolished in New York. And she saw her siblings were sold away. Um, her mother taught her to believe in God, taught her the Lord's Prayer, to look up to the stars and gave her a seed of faith. And sure enough, she was sold away as a child. She endured brutal beatings. Um, she would go to God after those things. And um, she just had this faith and she did get her freedom. Um, She escaped about a year before she was to be given her freedom. And um, a Quaker family took her in and she took their name. She learned about who Jesus was. She thought Jesus was like George Washington, 
or Lafayette. Mm -hmm. And then she learned more about the Bible and faith. And then she changed her name to Sojourner Truth because she really felt like God wanted her to preach um, his truth to people. And one of the ways that she did that was she gave her slave story to an abolitionist who published it. And that's why we know her slave story. And so that's really how slavery got abolished was these slaves that got freed in the Northern States shared their stories. And that helped people to really see the evils of slavery. Um, and she became not only an abolitionist, but a supporter of women winning the right to vote. And she gave this amazing speech called Ain't I a Woman during an Ohio Women's Rights Convention um, in the 1850s. And they um, published her speech um, a few weeks later. And the writer said, you had to have been there. It was so powerful. I wish there was a way to convey to you the emotion and the body language. Like he was really longing for a TV. He just didn't know it. But um, it was just the, her delivery was just so emotional and powerful because she did draw upon her slave experience. And she was saying, hey, ain't I a woman? Um, ain't I human? And shouldn't I have the right to vote um, like like um, male counterparts? Right. And. I think that it's interesting when, when people talk about the horrors of slavery, um, there's a lot to talk about, but right. I think the thing that really um, sticks with me and anything I've read about it is just the selling of, of families and just breaking up. Right. And you talk about her mother mm. who had many kids. I, how many kids did she have? Like uh, I, a lot, eight or a more. lot. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and it sounded like, Basically, from what you wrote, that they were all at some point taken away, and she just lived. Her mother lived with the knowledge that her kids at some point would like would be taken away one by one. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And um, I didn't write about this in the book or in terms of the story, but she met one of her sisters as an adult and didn't know she was her sister oh, um, wow. for a long time. Um, and then they, that was figured out later, but, and her son, her children were also sold off. And one of the stories that I tell in her chapter on person, her, she really represents perseverance. That quality was that one of her children um, was taken away and then was sold South, which was illegal in New York. So she went to a judge and she fought for that child to be brought back. And she won her court case, her child custody case, which is pretty astounding for um, for back then. And she really credited God for bringing her child back to her. And then she had this vision after um, a few years later, after the Emancipation Proclamation, that she wanted to meet the great emancipator. She wanted to meet Abraham Lincoln. And and God gave her that opportunity from her point of view, because she, about six months before Lincoln's death, she got a chance to meet him in the White House. And that's pretty um pretty, you know, special. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. C could you talk a little bit about that meeting? You give it a bit of an account of it. Yeah. So she, um, it was written up in the newspapers and so, um, people knew about it, not in quite real time, but pretty close. So a friend arranged for them to meet and she noticed that he was very differential to, um, the, the African Americans who were, were in the white house also meeting him. And she, he signed a book of hers, um, anti-sojourner and he showed her a bible that the people of baltimore 
on the colored people of Baltimore is how she described it, gave to him. And that was really special to her. And I think it was just shaking his hand and having that interaction with the president. What, if, what you know, people today get chills sometimes um, if it's their favorite president, they get a chance to meet him. Um, and that was just, that emotion was real to her. And then she went off after that, she went to Michigan and, and wanted to settle Michigan for freed slaves. Um, as a place where they could go and be free. So um, it was a, so it was so well known that she met him that someone made a painting of it after the fact, after his death, they took pictures of her and him and then they, they created this painting, which I have in the book. Hmm. Now it, it's interesting when you read about Frederick Douglass's relationship with President Lincoln, and there are times when Douglass uh, critiques Lincoln, and there are times where Douglass praises him, and it seems like, you know, after Lincoln's death, Douglass really saw Lincoln as a great president. What was uh, Sojourner Truth's kind of, uh, I guess, journey with President Lincoln? Did you get any sense of how she felt about him? I think she just, she always um, viewed him in a in a special way because of the Emancipation Proclamation, that that was her, um, I I don't know that she thought that that would ever really happen. And she credited Lincoln for having the courage to do it. And, you know, sometimes people talk today about how, you know, slaves built the White House and they did, but slaves were freed in in the Lincoln bedroom in the White House through that Emancipation Proclamation. And so he really completes that that great injustice he he solved it that way um and um i think that that was just that was a you know just such a special thing for her i was fascinated when you wrote about how she was taught to pray but she would pray out loud and she would shout and the concept of her of God knowing her thoughts that she didn't have to shout. She could just pray quietly. It was just a very interesting concept to see. Yeah. She wrote about that in her memoirs. And a lot of the times the way I try to approach history is when there's an authentic change in someone's life, an authentic arc. And in her memoirs, she really has the seed of faith that's planted in her mother. And she goes outside and she shouts out under the stars so God can hear her. And then she learns, oh, she doesn't have to do that, that God can hear her thoughts. And then she studies the Bible and then she becomes a preacher. And so she really, her faith is this really nice arc that we would say within film or within a novel. And you don't always see that in nonfiction, but you do see that progression in her. And I, I I like it when I see something like that, that growth um, of the individual. And and in her, you can see the confluence of those two great movements of that time, Mm -hmm. the abolition movement, as well as the women's suffrage movement. Right. And she was active in both. And I came across a newspaper article where she spoke at a um, convention in um, Massachusetts, and it was a relative of Lydia Taft's who was leading the anti-slavery session. So this is in the 1850s, a hundred years after Lydia Taft was the first to cast that vote as a woman. And then her family and her descendants are actually um, leading this convention for anti-slavery convention that Sojourner's Truth speaking at. And I just think that's a pretty cool 
you know, little confluence there you know, that you see that Lydia Taft's generations, descendants and nephews and nieces, you know, were involved in civil rights issues. Right. They're like historical book, historical bookends. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Now, uh, you know, in connection with her, but also with the other uh, great icon of the suffrage movement, Susan B. Anthony. So now we're talking about the suffrage movement during and after the Civil War. What was the relationship between those two movements? Obviously, you'd have a lot of shared interests, but also a lot of tension as well. Right. So the abolitionist movement and the women's suffrage movement were simultaneous. And Susan B. Anthony worked for um, the Abolitionist Society of New York. She was employed by them for a time before really she got into women's suffrage. And so they were holding conventions, um, state conventions, but they grew into national conventions for about 10 years prior to the Civil War for women's voting rights. And Frederick Douglass was a supporter of women, um, women's voting rights. And But when the Civil War came, the women were encouraged to stop their conventions. They didn't think it was appropriate. Now, Susan B. Anthony disagreed. She thought they should continue to keep the issue alive. And she probably had a point kind of in hindsight. But but Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and others helped to give Lincoln a mandate for the 13th Amendment because they gathered 400,000 signatures calling for the, ab- the abolishment of slavery. And they put that at the feet of Congress and said, here is your data. They didn't have polling back then, but they had these pit petitions and signatures. And so after the Civil War, there was um, an equal rights organization that came together that was women's suffrage and rights for the you know, free free slaves. Um, And that's where things got tense because some like Frederick Douglass recognized that members of Congress had lost their will for women's suffrage and that they, they politically were focused on the race issue. And so that really uh, set back the women's suffrage movement because, um, and they broke, they split because um, Douglass supported adding the word male to the, um, to the 14th Amendment, which disenfranchised women, because now you were going to have to have a constitutional amendment adding the word female to voting um, in the Constitution. And so there was a, a split over that issue. The, the women supported African-American men having the right to vote, but they just wanted women, regardless of race, to have the vote at the same time. So there was just this big disagreement on could you get both done at the same time? And, and ultimately, um, those who didn't think so won that, that particular debate. Right. And it seems that that debate, a lot of it was kind of based on a, a tactical decision on, okay, we, we want to introduce major reforms. How should we go about it? This is the, the famous phrase, this is the Negro's hour. This is right. when slaves can be freed. Let's focus on this. And then, and then, you know, a lot of suffragists were saying, well, if we lose this moment, you know, if this moment passes by, we won't be able to get suffrage for many years, which is what happened many decades. Right. So right. It, it's a very fascinating um, disagreement right. and and kind of lessons for how reform movements need to plan. It, it's it's just a very yeah. fascinating scenario. It is a very fascinating, you know, issue. And it and, you know, Frederick Douglass's point was, look, Freed, these freed slaves, these men in particular, they're being killed. And if we give them the vote, that will help protect their lives. And that was, you know, a stronger emotional argument 
um, than, than what the women had to offer. They were saying, look, it's, it's like a flower that's open and ready to be ready for a bee to come along, but then the flower closes. And that's what happened. People, the politicians were just tired of reform by the time you get to, you know, the 1870s after they passed those, those, the 14th and 15th, 13th, 14th and 15th amendment, they were just ready to do other things. Did Douglas support the amendment uh, in spite of the fact that it said male, or did he support that it would have the word male in it? You know, I don't know specifically how that, like, I don't know who introduced the word male to the amendment or, but I think he came down to, I I think he came down to, this is the best way to go to get it done. Mm -hmm. And and um, because he definitely supported women getting the right to vote. And I think he would have been happy if it had included women um, or if it had not included male, but just included free, free slate, you know, like he would. It, but I think it was just there were members of Congress who had supported women and the right to vote before the war who changed their mind and who were closed to the idea. That was part of the problem is that there was just only so much they were willing to do. When the term male starts showing up in, you said, you mentioned state laws and then, right. and then in the 14th amendment, was this uh, intentional? Was it a sense of, I mean, that was just the language that people started using then, or was it, uh, Oh, this, yeah, we'll grant reform, but Hey, let's make sure it's just men and not women. What do you know? Kind of why you know, that was? Um, I think sometimes it it had to have been intentional. It it was it, it's almost as if every time one group had expanded rights for voting in particular, the way to describe that group alienated another group. So um, when the non land non um, landowners got the right to vote, they had to add the word male to distinguish who they were really talking about, you know, so it, it, it was almost as if you couldn't, people just couldn't open it all up. It, it was, it was a way of describing who they were really targeting. And, um, but, but the, what happened, you know, and Ida B. Wells, um, Barnett, who I write about in the book too, she talked about how the great flower of the 1800s was abolishing slavery and universal male suffrage. So not all women suffragists um, saw were, were disappointed with that outcome because they saw it as a step, you know, toward toward the ultimate end game. And she had been a, born into slavery herself, but she was grateful that that African American men, black men, had be had become voters. Were, and of course, there are all sorts of other issues that happened after that. But that was the foundational. Uh, beginning of it, right. of, of, of voting rights for everyone. Right. And you mentioned how Susan B. Anthony and uh, a large part of the suffrage movement essentially changed their strategy with how they right. took on that term. Could you talk about that? Yes. So they began to lobby for the 16th Amendment to the Constitution to give women the right to vote. And they also um, switch tactics because Susan B. Anthony thought, well, I'm a U.S. citizen and I'm going to test this. And so she, in 1872, voted in the presidential election for Grant. She voted for Grant and she was put in jail 
and she went under trial. Um, and she went through to all of the county post offices in New York it, where she was being tried and gave a speech to um, to to uh, bring the jury over to her side. And so then they moved the case to another county um, because she was so effective in, in communicating her side. But her point was, I'm a U.S. citizen. I should be allowed to vote. And unfortunately, the judge who oversaw the case had predetermined that she didn't have the right to vote. So he had written his opinion before he heard the, the arguments at trial and he told the jury to dismiss the arguments and it was really not a fair trial. Um, but, um, and, but she stood up and, and gave her case and she gave a very effective case. You expect me to obey the law. I should have a say in who makes those laws and I'm a U.S. citizen. And it, it, they said, well, yeah, I, you still don't have the right to vote. And, um, and, and, but she tried a different tactic. Right. And the dialogue from that trial, it, it reads like from a movie. And it does. It, it, he really, the yeah. judge really plays his role as the villain well. I mean, it, it's, you're does. reading it. And I, as you said, she she's brilliant in what she says and her replies better than, I mean, she sounded like, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but she sounded like a, a lawyer, a constitutional lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. And they say that Elizabeth Cady Stanton was um, did a lot of the rhetorical writing, but that Anthony was the thunderbolt in delivery, that she was the gifted speaker and Anthony was the gifted writer. But I mean, that I'm sorry, Stanton was the gifted writer and they worked very well together. Um, but, you know, they never gave up that till they're both of them till their dying day pursued a constitutional amendment giving women the right to vote. And they they went to Congress year after year. Um, and the newspaper accounts sometimes made, made fun of them. Um, but they they um, they showed they were serious and that they did they were resilient. They did not give up. You mentioned that her case could have gone to the Supreme Court. Yes. What was how did that all work? So um, the judge was very smart. And you're right. He played his role of villain very well. He released her from jail. So if she had um, gone to jail after the conviction, she would have she would have been eligible for an appeal to the Supreme Court. But by releasing her from jail, she no longer had the basis for an appeal because she was not incarcerated. So. Um, you know, there's there's wonderment would that would the Supreme Court have given a different verdict? It's it's hard to say. A year later, that in a sort of similar case, they did not support the position of women having the right to vote in that case. So it's hard mm. to know, right? Um, if if it would have been any different, if it had been Anthony, sure, you know, yeah. Anthony's case. At the least, it probably would have been more prominent in the news. I think right, right. Because like it was her. in the newspaper all over the country. The dialogue of the trial was printed in the newspaper. Um, right. And just from reading the book, you, you know, you mentioned when uh, Anthony and Stanton ba- both pass away and it's just a couple decades, less than two decades short of when the 19th amendment gets passed. So you just wish historically that they would have been able to have seen that moment. Right. Right. And, um, there's a moment where Anthony goes to Chester Arthur, who was president. She, she was in the, his office. 
uh, or his library, one of those two rooms. And she, they, the newspaper talks about how she looked over her gold spectacles and, and gave him the reasons why he needed to support in his annual message to Congress, his State of the Union address, bring up the issue of women voting. And she said, this will be great for your reelection. And what she did not know is that he didn't have any intention of running for elect re-election. He was done. His wife had died and he he was really ready to bow out of politics. But she she gave it her best. And even after um even after Elizabeth Cady Stanton died, Susan V. Anthony writes a letter to Theodore Roosevelt, same kind of kind of sentiment. Please mention this in your State of the Union address. And Roosevelt did come around to voting rights for women, but it was after he was president when he ran as an independent, um, mm-hmm. at, not as a Republican. Um, he did support women's voting rights, but it was kind of a little late for it to have any real effect. Right, right. That that meeting with with President Arthur was it was very fascinating to me because y- you know you think about a moment like that and anyone who gets to meet the president it's it's like you're the guest the president is the dominant figure and you know here's President Arthur you know the the most important politician in America but historically most people don't know anything about President Arthur but they right. know Susan B. Anthony they've That's heard true. that name so. <laughs> It, it's just a. It was a very fascinating thing because, in hindsight, it's it's very different than what it must have been like at that moment. Yeah, and and the fact that she really she marched in and she gave it to him. I mean, she she didn't right. hold back. She wasn't in awe. Sure. <laughs> she she was focused. Um, yeah. And and you just think of the years that those women and I mean, I guess you know anyone advocating for. Uh, you know, any kind of social change or reform, just the the effort that it took and the years and the the gar- no guarantee that it would work. And sometimes what you're fighting for doesn't happen until after you live. So Right. Well, and there were some successes. I mean, women right. began to own property. They changed a lot of those state laws. Um, someone who had heard Susan B. Anthony speak moved to Wyoming. And she played a pivotal role in Wyoming granting women the right to vote in, I believe it was 1869. So some Western states did begin to give women the right to vote. And actually later, uh, the women's suffragists used that as leverage because those women voted out politicians who weren't supporting a constitutional amendment to, to give women all women the right to vote. So they used it politically. Um, to their advantage. But so there were some successes. It wasn't as if um, that all women were denied the right to vote, but it, it was just a slow process to go state by state. And that's why they really needed that constitutional amendment. It's tough to try to get women to vote when everyone you're convincing are men. That's a that's exactly. a tough when the system is you know. exactly and and they could make a lot of arguments. What about your daughter? What about your wife? Um, and, and sometimes those arguments really resonated, but, and I think sometimes if the men felt blamed, then I think that turned them off. So they had to play kind of a delicate balance of how they presented it. And some of them, you know, um, were, you know, really successful and convincing. They kept note cards on what the Senator or Congressman's wife's position was on the issue so that they could go and say, well, we know your wife supports this, you know, if she did. And so they were very detailed in their strategy and trying to convince members of Congress. 
Right. Uh, a question I've always been curious of. So I know that there was a split in the suffrage movement mm-hmm. in the late 1860s. You had these two groups, uh, Lucy Stone versus, right. I, I think, was it Anthony and Stanton? Yes. And so can right. what, what what happened there? What was the difference between the two? That was um, That was because of the fallout after the 14th and 15th Amendments. So Stone was more sympathetic to um, going with a more incremental strategy on voting. And that that's why they split. And um, they were split for several years. And I think that probably hurt the movement as a whole to have these two different competing organizations. One group took a more state by state approach. One took a more universal constitutional amendment approach. They disagreed on issues related to Mormonism and women and uh, Utah having the right to vote because of polygamy. I mean, there were all sorts of issues that they kind of got mired into, but they did come back together. I think they recognized that they were better united. And so they did come back together united. And then it was the next generation after Anthony and Stanton and Stone passed away that the, the women that came of age in the early 1900s got, got it over the finish line. Right, right. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. I mean, yeah. you, you know, there's so much in American history to study you know, the founding era. But I, I think when you think of uh, any movement in American history that was just as consequential as, you know, civil rights movement or anything, I mean, the suffrage movement is an, uh, just incredible history to study. Yes, because it's so long. Right, you know? right. Yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, obviously, those issues that are issues we still talk about today. They're still relevant. Um, And so the theme of this, you talk about resilience and you also talk about taking advantage of the opportunity, knowing you use this wonderful metaphor of when the, the, the wind is at your sails, you know, knowing that taking advantage. So can you just talk about those principles and what you think those uh, principles have, you know, for today's issues? Sure. Well, um, I noticed that um, Abigail Adams quoted Shakespeare in um, in how, um, you know, like sailors and captains of ships knew that you couldn't sail in sail wind. So you had to when the wind was right, you had to catch the, the wind and sail. And when we look at the issue of independence, um, people were ready to declare independence from England. Common sense. Um, played a role. Pastors were talking about it. There was just this large, uh, people were ready to declare independence, but they weren't really ready to figure out how to expand the voting, uh, the, the definition of a voter and the consent of the governed. And so we had this kind of dichotomy. And I think the same thing is true today in that sometimes people are really ready for a change and there's a, there's a, a, a large agreement that people are ready for it. And sometimes that they aren't and change is much more quick and fast today than it used to be. And I think that's another reason why sometimes it's hard for people to understand American history because they expect the speed of life today to be what it was like a hundred years ago. And George Washington rode a horse to work. Theodore Roosevelt rode a horse to work. And they were president more than 100 years apart. So change has really, the pace of it has, 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 has really quickened in our lifetime. And I think that's what's really different about back then 
versus you know to today. But the concept of um, galvanizing people for change, you do have to have a, a large nucleus of momentum, and that's why we have elections. Um, and that's why we consider some things mandates. And that's why it's important, you know, to look at who is in control of the House and the Senate and the presidency is, is, is because of those, those ideas. What did you learn about resilience that you feel like people should know or it would be good for people to know in kind of the current situation? Um, I learned, you know, I, I hadn't thought a lot about resilience before. I had thought a lot about um, perseverance, but I hadn't thought a lot about the issue of resilience. And I realized that resilience is perseverance on a spring because you're bouncing back. And I realized that all of these women had to persevere and bounce back. They had to have that long-term perseverance, but then when they had a setback, they had to get back out there. Um, and that spoke to me a lot. And then, then I realized that was the title of the book was Resilience on Parade. And that's a quality we really all need right now. And that they demonstrated that. And sometimes it took creative courage to be resilient. You know, sometimes it, it took just um, grit and determination, um, but that it's a quality, that ability to bounce back. And it's something that I'm more conscious of communicating to my kids. And I also realized how much my mother showed resilience in my life because she had polio in an epidemic, lost the use of her shoulder. And I realized every day of her life, she was bouncing back and she was going to be a seamstress and a quilter. She was going to not let the use of the loss of her shoulder prevent her from living as full a life as possible. And so that's kind of, I think that's a good takeaway that we might not be able to relate to the fact that women used to not be able to have the right to vote, but we can relate to those character qualities of initiative and vision and resilience. And I think those, that's what makes history to me come to life is looking at it through those qualities that we still all, all need. Great. That's wonderful. The book is called Resilience on Parade, uh, one of Jane's many books. She's uh, written several books uh, on different eras in American history. And so I highly recommend it. There's a lot more than what we just talked about. We only pretty much talked about the first half of the book. So there are a lot of great, great. stories on a lot of other fascinating people. But Jane, thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you for having me, Richard. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We are a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts. Please visit evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... 
The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.